Welcome to the Nurse Surgery Podcast. I'm Mike Wang, and I'm here with my co-host, J.P. Colson. We are here to discuss all things neurosurgical. Hi, this is J.P. Colson, a resident in neurosurgery at Rush University. Please note that this is not a CME event, and the opinions and statements made in this podcast do not reflect those of any institution or professional organization. Now, let's get started. The title of today's podcast is Rock in a Sub-Eye. Our guests are Rick Komatar, who is a professor of neurosurgery at University of Miami, and he's our program director, and Greg Basil, who's one of our residents at University of Miami. Welcome. Thanks, Mike. Thanks for having us on. Great, great, great. So today's podcast is one uh, that it will be of great interest to people joining our ranks. Each year we know that many more medical students apply for neurosurgery residency spots than there are openings. So it's a really competitive process, and we're going to try to peel some layers off that onion in the next half hour, so let's get started. So, Greg, I'm going to begin by asking you about how you felt about the sub-I process, and maybe then have John Paul weigh in as he kind of just went through it recently, okay? Sure, sure, yeah. You know, um, for me, it was, a, it was a super exciting time. I think it was the first time that I actually began to feel um, like I was a neurosurgeon or I was becoming a part of this neurosurgical community. Um, but obviously, it's a very stressful time as well. Um, you feel like you are being judged throughout the process, which is which is true. Um, and, and you know, it's also a very expensive time. Um, it, it costs a lot of money to do all these things, so you kind of have a lot of things going on at once. But um, I think we're going to get into some of the details of those things as we as we move on in a podcast. Yeah, I mean, I agree with Greg. Um, uh, this is one of the more important decisions that that an applicant can have is where to do your sub eyes, how many sub eyes to do. Uh, so we take that very seriously here at the University of Miami. We always meet with all of the students uh, before they select their sub-eyes, uh, go over their application process, see where they want to be in the country, what level of applicant they are so that they apply at the appropriate programs. John, what do you think? You just went through this, right? I mean, it's, I've heard, you know, it's harrowing now, right? You're traveling all over the country, new places. You know, tell, tell us about what you just went through last year. I think one of the most interesting parts of the process for me was this was the first time I saw other hospitals and met other departments, uh, seeing how people do things elsewhere, how different systems work. Um, Certainly it was harrowing. One of the most difficult things logistically was just organizing where you're going to live for a month in each city, how you're going to get around. You're obviously not going to have a car there. Rentals can be expensive. Uh, Trying to get the lay of the land on such a tight schedule moving between cities and institutions it can be hectic, so planning in advance is highly recommended. Yeah, and that's hopefully what people get out of listening to us today. So, um, you know, it's really interesting. We get a number of sub-eyes coming through here, and I know, Rick, you handle a lot of these uh, applications, and you're going to give uh, some insight on how you can match at University of Miami, right? Correct. So I, um, so I think when you're picking sub-eyes, there's a couple of factors that you need to be, um, be kind of cognizant of. First is, where do you want to end up? So uh, the idea that you have to do bi-coastal sub-eyes, to me, makes no sense. If you want to be in the East Coast, you should do your sub-eyes on the East Coast. If you want to be in the Midwest, you should do your sub-eyes in the Midwest. And if you want to be on the West Coast, you should do your sub-eyes on the West Coast. Now, I'm going to stop you there because I, when I was applying back in 1995, that's exactly what I was told. I was told that if I did all my sub-eyes on the West Coast, which I did, nobody would take me seriously on the East Coast program. Yep, and that's a, that's a rumor that goes around, but I can tell you as, as, as a um, program director, if someone is willing to pay for a flight, hotel, they fly out, they interview with you, clearly they're taking your program seriously. So we interview top applicants that are from the West Coast that have not done sub-eyes on the East Coast. 
We have ranked them highly. They have matched here um, and vice versa. So um, I always tell applicants, if you're deciding where to do sub-eyes, uh, I wouldn't worry about having to cover both coasts. I would go wherever you want to spend the next seven years. Uh, that's one part of the, of the process. The other thing is you have to pick sub-eyes that kind of match your level of application. So if you are an average uh, applicant, you're coming out with board scores that are not superior, you're coming out with maybe a very few pubs, um, and you're not at the top of your class, you, you really want to be sure that you apply to programs that you're going to be, you know, that you will be um, competitive at. You don't want to apply to the best programs if your application is not the best, because those are tryouts for one month, and those are your best chances of really matching. So we always meet with all of our students uh, prior to them picking sub-eyes, we go over their board scores, their research, um, you know, what's their position in their class, what are their goals, and the top applicants are pretty clear, and those are the applicants that really should be looking at the top, top programs. Students that are kind of middle of the road should be looking at lower tier programs so they can improve their chances of matching. But Rick, but Rick, let me just stop you there because, I mean, as neurosurgeons, we all think highly of ourselves, right? Every applicant thinks they're a superstar, every program thinks they're the best, right? So how do you... <clears throat> Maybe, how do you make that marriage happen in a better way, right? Everybody thinks they're a 10, right? Yeah, I mean, you, you, there's definitely a lot of talks where you kind of bring the applicant back to reality. Uh, it's not always easy, but I feel like uh, they need to know going into it. And that's why it's important for applicants to meet with your program director early. You don't want to be meeting with them after you've already picked your sub-eyes, it's the fall or it's late summer. You want to meet with your program director early. And by that, I mean January, February of your third year. So you're picking out sub-eyes. Um, and it is very difficult because sometimes I do have to bring people back to reality and let them know that, look, you may not match or you will match, but you've got to apply broadly and really apply to lower tier programs to ensure that you match. And that's a very tough discussion, but it's it's better to have it then than, than to have it when they have not matched. Well, that's great advice. So so with that in mind, I mean, why not do like 30 of them and see what happens? Yeah, you know, that's that's also changed. I, I, I feel like, uh, you know, back when I was applying, which was 2004, um, people were doing two sub-eyes, one at home, one away. Uh, that became one at home, two away. Now there's people doing one at home, three away. I, I personally think that that's excessive. I tell people you should do at least one at home and one away. Um, if you have the time, you have the financial resources, and you want to get a third sub-eye in there, that's fine. I, I personally think four um, is a little bit excessive, but if you enjoy it, you want to do it, you have the resources and the time, sure. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I think when I was applying, which now we're talking about almost four years ago, the standard was pretty much everybody was doing three, and one at home institution and two away. Um, and then there were people starting to do four, and I've heard more and more people doing four now, but you know, there's, there's definitely a practical component that you've kind of touched on too, is that we all have kind of limited resources, certainly as medical students, and, and that definitely becomes a factor in your way rotations. I think the other thing to consider, which um, Rick, you can comment on this, is that, uh, you know, the places where you do sub-eyes are not necessarily where you're gonna go. It's great if it ends up being a good fit, but um, it, it, you don't have to do a sub-eye to match somewhere, right? Yeah, correct. It, it does give you an advantage if you do a good job. I can definitely tell you here at Miami, if someone comes to do a sub-eye uh, uh, and they really impress us, obviously they're gonna be ranked highly because there's a lot less risk in taking that person. You've seen them for a full month. Uh, it's much harder to kind of disguise any type of uh, pathology. Um, so I think sub-eyes, if you do well, definitely 
help you. At the same time, doing multiple sub-eyes, it's very easy to kind of shoot yourself in the foot um, because sub-eyes, as we'll get into later, I, I truly think it's a very difficult job. Um, it's one month tryout. You want to be recognized, you want to be remembered, but you don't want to be annoying. Um, and that's something that I think Greg did a great job of when he was here, so did JP. Uh, maybe you guys can talk a little bit about the delicate balance of being seen, but not being heard, working hard, making an impression, but not being annoying. Right, so having just gone through this process myself, I think that was certainly one of the most difficult aspects of it, and uh, one of the finest skills it, it helps you to hone. Um, I think in order to tread that line between annoying and helpful, you have to really understand how the service works and how the hospital works uh, where you're currently rotating. So uh, being familiar with the people on the team and the tasks required by that team each day, uh, and then able, uh, being able to help them without getting in the way, without being constantly underfoot, uh, just not being annoying in itself demonstrates that you understand the functions of the team and what you have to get done each day, which is a, a skill and knowledge set in and of itself. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I think I'm in a, a pretty good situation now to, to kind of give some advice on this because I can see it from the perspective of the sub-I and also um, the perspective of a resident. And, you know, there's a couple things that you can do to be really, really helpful. The first is to keep in mind that all of the juniors, uh, specifically the junior residents on service, are very, very busy. They have a ton of work to do. So anything you can do to help them to make their day a little bit easier, even if it's not super fun or exciting, like changing dressings or having a really good list done in the morning, those are like really low-hanging fruit. Well, Greg, you mean like getting them coffee, washing their no, car? No, no, what no. You no. Like, what, like what exactly <laughs> no. do you mean? Let's. No, let's no, nothing like that. Uh, what, what I mean is if you think about the fact that you're potentially, if you're lucky, going to be a first-year resident in a year, and if you could mentally put yourself in the shoes of that first-year resident and think about what tasks – could someone do that would make your life easier? Um, you know, I, I think that is the most useful thing. So let me let me ask you about something that's a little bit maybe off the wall because none of us have personal experience with this. Except, you know, some people are going to go do a sub eye and they're just going to blow it. They're going to either feel it or maybe they're they're going to hear it directly. What do you do with that scenario? Like, what do you what? Like, someone comes and like, okay, Greg, you've been there, right? Guy came out from University X medical school and, and, and they just really sucked on service. And, and they're like, what do you do with that? Do you, can you, can you like take it as an exempt class or like, is it on your record forever? What do you do with that? I mean, you're done. Well, I think <laughs> I got I mean, I gotta be honest. It's, it's, I, mean, I, mean, I can right? tell you from, from, from a um, program director standpoint, it's so competitive nowadays and there's so many incredibly qualified applicants that the margin for error is slim. And unfortunately, you got to look at board scores, you got to look at grades, you got to look at research, letters of recommendation, quality of the school, personality. But if someone blows a sub-eye where they're there for a month um, and they either don't perform or they act, you know, in a very um, inappropriate fashion, there's no coming back from that. It's too competitive. There's too many applicants that have done a good job that have just the same board score. So unfortunately, in today's competitive environment, very difficult, if not impossible, to come back from a bad sub -ice. I mean, is there like a secret cabal where you guys get together as program directors, like, even though you didn't write them letters, like, oh, my God. Well, they, they probably call you, right, and say, you yeah, know, tell you us can about tell this guy, right? Or gal. So everyone should get a letter from every sub -eye. You don't want to do a sub as an applicant and not get a letter because that 
is kind of a red flag. So every single sub I you do should have at least one letter. So if you do two sub I's, that should be two letters. And if you do three sub I's, it should be three letters. It should come from either the chairman or the program director or a highly visible um, attending. So just because you're friends with one of the junior attendings who's been there two years, I do not recommend getting a letter from them. Uh, again, this process is so competitive and there's so many applications that when we get a letter from someone who is notable, who we know what kind of letters they write, who is reputable, we're going to take that letter much more seriously than someone who we haven't heard of, we've never seen their letters before. It's much harder to kind of decipher what that letter means. So, so your letters should come from high-level people. And then if the letter is lukewarm, that's a signal for the other programs to call. Um, no one's going to badmouth you on a letter of recommendation. No one wants to put it in writing. Uh, but there are definitely code words that are said in letters such that programs know call, there's something, there's more than, than kind of meets the eye well, here. And I think, Rick, that's a good question, and you'd probably be able to answer that one as well, but how do you go about, you know, getting those letters? I mean, you know, it, presumably we're going to be asking you or, or Dr. Levy or Dr. Wang uh, here for a letter of recommendation, but we may not have a ton of exposure to you directly over the course of that, of that sub-I. Um, so, so how do you go about gathering information on an applicant? Is it what the residents say, what the other attendings say? And, and how do you recommend working that balance while you're on the sub-I, spending a certain amount of time in the OR so the attendings know who you are, but also being helpful to the junior residents? Yeah, I mean, so first thing is I would not be shy about asking for letters. Every program director, every chairman, every attending knows that sub-I's are going to ask for letters. So no one's going to be you know, upset that you ask them for a letter. I would ask for the letter early so they have time to, to kind of put it together and I would not be shy. Um, in terms of making sure the letter is good, um, you have to realize that the attendings are obviously very busy. They have a lot on their plate and their letter is mainly going to be based off what the residents say. So if, a, if, if someone does a sub-I here at Miami, yes, I work with them in the OR. I talk to them here and there. I see them in clinic. But my... But the, but, but the vast majority of my interpretation of someone's sub-I comes from the residents because the residents work with them basically 24-7 for a month. So most chairmen, most attendings, most program directors are going to talk to the residents and say, how was this guy as a sub-I when they write the letter? Yes, they can look at your CV and they'll see your boards and your grades and that's important for the letter. But what type of quality applicant you are as a neurosurgeon, how do you interact on service, are you a team player, are you technically competent, um, are you socially competent? All of those are gonna come out from the residents. So I would tell applicants that it's easy to kind of get lost and be like, well, I really wanna spend a lot of time with the chairman and the program director and I'm gonna ignore the residents. You're definitely shooting yourself in the foot. Residents are the ones that basically write your letter and you have to make sure that you get in good and you spend time with the residents. So we're all kissing Greg's ass. I love it. So, <laughs> but let I'm me ask you, that, yeah. so going back to blowing it, so you already blew it, right? So Rick, what's the bigger red flag? No letter or lukewarm letter? No letter. Wow. Okay. So make sure you get letters. And um, I was going to ask you about like after people get the interviews or they come for stuff, I like, do you, like there's this whole thing with the millennial generation. I'm not a millennial and I don't, you aren't either, nope. right? Like, the writing of thank you notes and all that, like <laughs> handwritten, typed, email. Yeah, I gotta be honest, we get a lot of thank you notes and nine out of 10 piss me off. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's just so over the top. But every now and then you get 
one that is genuine. And you can tell it's genuine by the way it's written, by the way they interview. They truly do love the program. They truly are grateful for the opportunity to actually be there and interview. What makes it genuine, I, I don't know, but there's definitely, you can tell when it's genuine versus something that literally cut and paste, cut and paste, cut and paste to all the attendings and they just change the name of the university. That is, that's not a good step forward. But if you truly like a program, you know, if you interview, let's say 10, 15 programs and there are two, three or four programs that you truly love and you had a great experience, it's not bad to write an individual letter to the program director or the chairman or an attending that really took you under their wing. But to do it, you know, over email and just cut and paste, cut and paste, you're not, you're not fooling You've gotten anyone. the ones where it's like a cut and paste, but it has another guy's name on it. <laughs> exactly. I get an email, dear Dr. Komatar, I really enjoyed spending exactly. time with Or you. it's like a different different font, with like a different color lettering. You can tell it's cut and paste. Yeah, and to be honest, I think a lot of people worry. Do people care about that? Do they not? Should I send it? Should I not send it? But I think what I'm hearing from you, and I'll tell you from my perspective, in, a, res in a resident room, in general, when people hand out thank you cards, it can be a little bit pedantic. Sure. And I, and I don't think it's necessarily well cigars, taken. Cigars, chocolate's okay, but thank you for Yeah, no, cigars as long as they're Cuban. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, let's go back to John. I mean, John, you know, you're a co-host here. You just went through this. Tell us, like, maybe walk us through the average day of, like, how, like, what, what was it like? Like, we got listeners that are maybe in college or, you know... They want to be neurosurgeons. They're, they're going to go through this process. Prepare them mentally. Like, what, what is it one day kind of like, briefly? So they start early. Um, and you want to get to the hospital generally well before the first member of the team. Um, like uh, Greg said, having a good list done in the morning, good numbers, all the information arrayed for the intern when they show up. Uh, you want to know the patients uh, and the full service as well as the residents do, uh, demonstrating that you're... Their boots on the ground, sun up to sundown, um, really fully integrated into the team. Uh, at that point, it varies between institution. Generally, people round in the morning. You're there with them through that. Um, and then you try to help on the floor as much as possible. Like Greg said, help the interns, help the junior residents. They're busier than you could possibly imagine. And so any way you can try to lighten that load will be appreciated. And you'll really meaningfully contribute to their day. Um, at that point, if there's not anything going on, any academics or presentations, they'll generally send you to the OR. That's uh, your chance to really interact with some of the more senior residents, uh, the attendings, and uh, typically stay there throughout the day, again, if there's not any other events. Um, my rule of thumb was to never leave the OR until the last case is done. I just go around try to be there as much as possible if nothing else is going on. So they, when they try to send you home, is that a trick question? Or, like, is it a trap? Or... Yeah, I mean, I can just tell you, I can just tell you having been a resident and it still sticks in my mind that if you're doing a sub-I and the person on call is like, oh, there's nothing to do, just go home, you're doing a really, really bad job and you're super annoying. Yeah, just you're, probably annoying. you're probably <laughs> annoying people. You're super annoying. I'll tell you what, um, one thing that John Paul was talking about, it can be really hard to figure out what time to come in in the morning, right? because um, there are going to be other sub-I's there with you. And in my case, I started and I asked one of the sub-I's, I said, what time are we coming in in the morning? He said, oh, man, there's this real gunner here. He's coming in at 4.30 in the morning. And so I started coming in at 4. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> That's why yeah, you and, and actually that gunner uh, ended up becoming one of my best friends in a program. So shout out Jason Leonakis. We both ended up matching here. But, uh, you know, so I guess, uh, you know, in that case, it was good for us. We came in early. We made the list. But it's a little tough. You don't want to be, you know, I can tell you, you can definitely go too far. I had a guy walk in. We had a sub-I here. And it was, I was on call that night. And 2 o'clock in the morning, he walked into the call room. And I said, hey, man, what are you doing here? 
He said, no, I came early to make a list. And to be honest, the rest of us talked about it. It was like, it was kind of a red flag for us that this guy was two in the morning. It was like overkill, you know? So you were always kind of trying to tread that line between being helpful but not doing too much. It can be tricky. No, it is tricky. I think being a sub-eye is one of the hardest things to do. It's important to note there, um, obviously you're entering into some healthy competition with the other sub-eyes, but I think one of the best parts of the experience for me was some of the cooperation with the other people in the field. Uh, you can make some really close friends of people who are in your cohort. They're about to go through the interview cycle with you. Um, and you know, you're together with them for a month just like you are the rest of the program. So it's a good chance to meet people, make contacts that you can uh, swap stories with and gossip with in the interview trail that's about to follow. So don't be afraid to be friendly. Yeah, no, even that, if the guys that's actually a, a really good point. You. Another, you know, Rick has been talking about red flags. A huge red flag is if you see one sub-I who treats another sub-I badly or who isn't helpful or who is obviously trying to throw someone under the bus. We don't like to see that because we want to work with you. We want people that we like that are nice people um, in general. So uh, I would avoid that kind of behavior. I agree. One, because it's just not a good way to behave. But two, it, it doesn't go over well with the rest of the team. You know, John Paul, you, you introduced me to Jocko Willink and his podcast. I love this analogy with Navy SEALs. And you think about Hell Week. That, you know, here's a, here's a pyramidal process where people are being eliminated. And in the end, the guys who get through it, I mean, they become best friends. But they're, they're competitive, like you and Jason, right? Yeah, it was a healthy, right? a healthy competition. But we were, we were friends. But, you know, we were kind of trying to outdo each other in terms of who did a better list or who got in earlier. But it, but it never became unfriendly. It was always helpful. You know, I know and we're going to address this in a future podcast, uh, which we're going to be recording soon. But this issue of how, how um, female applicants integrate in that, because it, there is a lot of like sort of, um, uh, you know, a competitive athletic type of uh, feel to it, isn't there? I mean, Rick, you, you do the softball tournament, right? You started that with uh, with um, Jeff Bruce, right? And, and there's there's something innate about what we do that's kind of like athletics, right? Yeah, I mean, I think, I you know, I think surgery in general uh, has a lot of analogies to athletics. I think the teamwork, the dedication, the focus, the, the, the sacrifice you have to do to kind of be excellent in sports uh, with the hand-eye coordination and the repetition, very similar to surgery. Um, along the lines of, of, of gender, um, I've been amazed. I mean, the last couple of years, some of our best sub-eyes are, are women. Some of our best residents are women. Um, so as long as the person uh, has that innate drive and that dedication to neurosurgery, uh, male or female, they're going to do excellent. Great, great. Now, I really, I really enjoyed my sub-eyes and uh, the interview process, and I spent a ton of money, but I made a ton of friends, and I still remember it fondly, but, you know, it gets expensive. So, John, you went through this, right, in, in 2018 and 2017, and, like, I mean, how do you, I mean, you're, I mean, you're independently wealthy, I don't know, but, like, how do you pay for it? <laughs> you will be, but... Currently, like, how, I mean, how do you address that? How do you deal with the cost? I mean, do you do it Airbnb? Like, what, like, what do you do to get through this process? So Airbnb can be your best friend. Certainly on the interview trail, um, I think I exclusively used Airbnb. Um, obviously, if you have friends or family in any cities where you'll be visiting for a sub-eye, and then again on the interview trail, take advantage of them. Um, like Dr. Komatar said, don't be shy to ask for a letter. Don't be shy to ask for a sofa. Um, for the sub-eyes themselves, there are various services that connect students between schools. Um, I'm sure they'll come and go with the years. Uh, my year was called Rotating Room. It's like an online form. It connects you to students at other schools who are g going on rotation uh, the same time that you are. You can stay in each other's apartments. 
Um, I stayed in someone's house in Virginia for a month. I used his bike to get to the hospital. So just being mindful for affordable ways to find housing, to find what was, transportation. What was that called again? What was that website? Rotatingroom.com. Okay. Is that like an app you can use? or? Uh, I don't know if they have an app. It's a website. And it, okay. it connects. It's medical student exclusive, so it connects you to other students who are doing externships around the country. It's like a youth hostel kind of like thing for you guys? <laughs> <laughs> uh, it was a little cleaner than a hostel. But, you know, I mean, you're staying in each other's apartments I, and houses. I would say that also you, you have to know what kind of a person you are. I mean, some people can, can live in, like, miserable, you know, accommodations and, and bike to work every day and be okay. And some people need, like, a little bit better. And I, and I would say know the kind of person that you are um, because that's important. The most important thing is that you perform well in the sub-eyes. And I think whatever little bit of extra money that you end up spending to make yourself comfortable, if that's going to make you perform better, is probably worth it. You know, I stayed in a friend's house, and, and one of the sub-eyes I did, which I was fortunate that he lived in that area, I stayed with an uh, 85-year-old grandmother here in in, uh, in Miami, which ended up being an amazing situation. She, like, cooked me fresh dinner every night, and... But um, we didn't have we didn't have that that website. We were I was using Craigslist and I was pretty nervous. I had like to like share a bathroom with her in a little house. But it ended up being like my best living situation. I still keep in touch with her. But yeah, use whatever resources you have. That's great. That's great. Well, this has been really instructive. Now this is I'm sure partly an educational podcast for most listeners. So I would like to sort of end by asking our guests, you know, some kind of a you know educational factoid or fact or new knowledge in neurosurgery you could share with us and our listeners? I'm going to let Rick um, kick that one off. Wow. I mean, <laughs> and this is, um, this is dealing with anything? Anything in neurosurgery? Sure. Anything even peripherally related to, you know, like sports cars or uh, neurosurgery, anything. Tell us, tell us about this new machine that you have, the new, uh, new histology machine. Um, yeah, so we've been trialing the NEO system. Uh, it's a Raman spectroscopy system. Um, with a huge amount of potential. Basically, currently when we take out uh, tumors and you need a frozen section, spine, brain, doesn't really matter. There's obviously a huge delay. Can be anywhere from 20 minutes up to an hour, depending on where you're at. Um, and that can delay the course of surgery and what you're gonna what you're gonna do next. So this uh, this machine uh, allows you to get uh, real time uh, images um, that look like H and E that give a decent uh, accurate um, representation of what the tissue looks like within three minutes. And wow. so this Wait, gives, hold on, hold on. We're waiting at OR for pathology for usually how long? It's usually 20 minutes to an hour, depending on who's, you know, time of the day, where you're at, who the pathologist is. And this allows you to get uh, not quite a detailed image, but very close enough to make a diagnosis usually within two to three minutes. And so I have a feeling this is going to change the way that we do intraoperative histology um, that can really guide uh, not only what the diagnosis is, but it'll shorten the amount of, uh, shorten the length of these cases and potentially even guide um, um, extent of, of um, resection, basically looking and seeing, is there any tumor left? Sometimes when you're on the margin of tumors, uh, you're not sure if it's a gross total resection. This tissue or, or this machine allows you to look at tissue on the periphery and see if there's actually neoplastic tissue involved. So uh, I think this is a major game changer. Uh, it's still being developed. We are still collecting data, but it's got a bright future. So if you don't match a neurosurgery, definitely don't go into pathology. 100%. Pathology is out the door soon. We hope you've enjoyed today's podcast. Uh, please don't forget to subscribe to our series. Uh, you can always reach John Palmy by emailing us at neurosurgerypodcast at gmail.com. Thanks. Thank you.